Do objects tell us anything about their owners? Maybe if you follow an object across the years, you can find out. This story is about a hat, one of those Australian bush hats that tourists love, but which usually make them look ridiculous. But then, aren't we all ridiculous in the end? Hat. Foldable Australian kangaroo leather. Maintain with mink oil. She bought it for him at the Saturday market in the rocks, down where the Sydney Harbour Bridge launches itself across the water. It makes you look distinguished, she said. It makes me look like a tourist, he replied. But he did like the sight of himself, grinning to the mirror, all Ned Kelly and Outback Savvy. A hat can make a man look manly, he thought, even if he's from Ballybrack. It was love at second sight. She worked in the jeans department of Grace Brothers in Chatswood. He'd picked up a job as a stock boy, hauling clothes from the back room to the shop front. At their first encounter, she'd just completed a very tricky sale to a very tricky customer, and all her flattery and compassion had been spent. She gave him the cold stare when he tried to get her talking. Never mind. Back to the stock room with that trolley. The one-year work visa was a grand thing, a decent enough wage for beer and rent, and if you were prepared to turn your hand to anything, then work was available all over Australia. Or so he'd been told. It was 1989. The lucky country was still lucky. And apart from being shocked by the racism, so casually adopted by his fellow countrymen in some of the pubs around King's Cross, he was having a good time. It was about to get better. At the Grace Brothers' Christmas party, Ashling, second-generation Irish with a broad North Shore accent, she of the jeans department, agreed to a dance. Cold Victoria Bitter loosens the tongue and the limbs. She said he was a crazy, ridiculous rag-doll dancer, and even so, they could have danced all night, while around them fractious disputation raged between the working visa boys from Europe and the permanent Australian staff. But he was with Ashling, gyrating, talking, laughing, and barely noticed the fists flying, then the bottles, the crack of tooth, the snap of bone, the whole pandemonium of drunken masculinity. The party was broken up, and everyone ushered outside to the cool evening air, and the first kiss there was more tender, joyful and sexy than any future moment would prove. The next day, she bought him the hat, and love commenced in earnest. Hats. Why try to look older than you are? Why try to absorb a whole questionable culture of outback cowboy survivalist claptrap? How can you carry off hat-wearing when you're a timid, thin-skinned white boy from south of South Dublin? Because hats, let's face it, are cool. Not the Tommy Cooper fez, perhaps. Not the Stetsons of Irish country, the world's most truly egregious genre of music. But this head-covering of elegance that you could at least pretend was an advisory protection from the scorching of Antipodean skies. All you need to wear a hat well is to be confident and earth-shatteringly handsome. OK, one of these will do. They made love, and he kept his hat on. She laughed, so it was worth it, and inevitably she looked beautiful in the hat. Happiness was available. He made a mess of it, of course, but the love lingered. The love went on for years. 
At Coogee they had their first row, and she flung the hat into the sea, off its span, a demented frisbee, out over the sparkling green and down into the salt. Don't salt your hat. It takes ages to dry out and clean. He couldn't wear it for weeks, but fetch it he most certainly did. A dog into the water after a stick, a man desperate to retrieve his token of significance. They weren't really suited. They had little in common. So they stayed together for twenty years, had two children and a messy divorce. But that was later. For the summer, at least, rows aside, they tripped the light, they drank the wine. He kissed the tattoo of an Irish flag on her right breast. She kneaded and moulded him like wet clay and fired him in the kiln. She turned him from a clumsy but eager specimen into a skilled practitioner of the soft caress. She taught him timing and stamina, and he acceded to every request. They ached with craving. They unleashed themselves on each other and could not be sated. They fused in the dazzling dark. When the year was done, he went back to Ireland, serious custodian of a solemn promise. She was to follow on, her own work visa in hand, and they would continue the adventure. First in the land of his birth, snaking along the narrow boreens of West Cork and Kerry, and then, when what was left of their money ran out, back over the Irish Sea to London to scatter themselves across its devious charms. But London has a rough indifference, swallows immigrants whole. They struggled to find work and a place to stay. Friends' floors, a squat in King's Cross, a bedsit in Balham. Bad bar work, bad shop work, but eventually, and due to not inconsiderable mutual devotion, it sorted itself out. With the first decent paycheck in her pocket and a John Lewis discount card, she proposed. He put on the hat and accepted, though, truth be told, the hat mostly stayed on its nail, unwanted, for the most part, in the urban sophistication of the post-imperial capital. He wore it once when they went clubbing on the Charing Cross Road. Everyone giggled, and he felt stupid, but she told him to dance on, that he was the most camp, uncoordinated dancer of all, and that he sparkled uniquely, especially in the hat. The little card in the calico bag said that foldable kangaroo hats are ideal for travelling, as they are made from one of the strongest leathers in the world. The leather can be cut very thin to give a lighter weight that can fold down to a small compact size and which can be stored in a bag for short periods without losing its overall shape. The foldable kangaroo is made from extremely soft, pliable and lightweight kangaroo leather, the toughest leather in the world pound for pound. But, the card warned, that for the best feel, people are encouraged to wear their hat as loosely as they can possibly get away with without it falling off the head. They were married in a registry office in Camden Town, went on honeymoon to Paris and Prague, put early versions of the soon-to-be-literally-unbearable love padlock on a bridge in each city, and twice got so drunk that they couldn't find their hotel. Then, when they got back, he started as a housing support worker for the council, and a few weeks later she was promoted to section manager in the department store. Progress, stability... Alienated, atomized, wage slave, life established. On the way back from the hospital after the birth of their first child, Connor, strung out but delighted, he was standing on the platform of the North London Link at Camden Road when a goods train trundled by and the hat swirled up into the air, onto the track and under the rails. 
It was scarred for life. A great furrow was gouged down the top of the hat, as if he himself had been run over by the train. Steel and grease had left an indelible stamp. But you know what? It was a wound of the world, a badge of pride. Took time to heal, mind. Lots of care and oiling and gentle stretching. But the leather held. It bore the damage, and it endured. The hat was put in a drawer, then. The hat was lost for its own protection. The clamour of family, of parenthood, of quotidian necessity had no time for hats. The young boy grew. He was healthy and strong, and then troubled and bullied. Before they knew it, he was wild, rebellious and also angry. Extraordinary volcanic rage, tectonic ire at the crass demands of teenage living. And then he took to smoking and drinking. Soon enough, he was caught by a gang. The youth offending team were involved. How did all that happen? They had been so supportive and liberal and wanted only to be his friend. In the middle of that turmoil, though, a sister was born. Further conundrums. To take the test or not. Ashling, you're not getting any younger, he blurted, but platitudes can still make a point. The risk of amniocentesis was debated long and hard. They went for it. They found out. They couldn't exit. Two children then, one with a criminal record, one with significant learning difficulties. Grind on, sweet lava flow. They were simply defeated by events. On a good day, that was his diagnosis. He wasn't, hadn't been, a man prone to much in the way of rumination. His life happened mostly on the surface, didn't drain too deep. What good was cruel reflection anyway? And could any two, under the weight of such pressure, not crumble and crack and fissure? So he did not blame Ashling, and she, so he hoped, so he prayed, did not blame him. And knowing this, in the innermost chambers of their souls they proceeded to blame each other for everything. What happened to physical love? It became perfunctory, but only after the birth of their daughter Orla. Yet the funny thing was, he longed for her, even as the tired reality of her ageing body lying next to his ageing body yearned for sleep so much more than desire. Was it that he wanted to want to love her, or was it that he still really wanted her? Why then did his mind not connect better with the animal instinct that once he had so relied on? They agreed, they planned, they tried, they held each other, they fell to talking about their woes, and they looked into the terrified lonely eyes that were staring back. What had been so light and carefree had calcified, had fractured. What can you do with the ashes of love? Nothing. Live on. The worst of it all was that he felt a fraud, an imposter, in the grand ambition of his daydreams. He interrogated himself, which had not been something he would even have thought possible in those younger incarnations. It was all very talking heads. This is not my beautiful life. But when he tried to locate the timing of the twist, of the rupture, he couldn't point to a single thing. The children had required attention and concern, the simple demands that are given with urgent parental adoration, and that had impacted upon the relationship between Ashling and him, as it does for every couple who are fortunate enough to have children. But for all the effort he made, he was a failure. He was desperate to be a good father, whatever good father means, but the fabulous bond he should have had with his son was frayed from the beginning. There was something, surely, that he hadn't done, that he hadn't been able to do because he didn't know how. And though he doted, all fathers must dote, upon his daughter, and though he blazed with protective love, 
He had always to banish the thought that he should be better at playing this role of guardian of a disabled person. He felt he should be more of a champion, more of a campaigner. But instead he muddled and he stumbled. An Ashling was drifting away, and his son began to look upon him with contempt, and the innocent admiration that he found in his daughter's gaze became the certain evidence of his total inadequacy. For such a simple man he was overwrought with thinking. He was trapped in a wicked tangle of self-doubting befuddlement. When Connor committed suicide, they knew they were irreparably broken. Who wouldn't be? He had hidden away in plain sight the agony of his being. If only so many things had been different. But now it was too late for if only. They felt condemned, not having been able to nurture their firstborn to a happy adulthood. And now all the standards they had both tried to set for themselves fell away in retrospect. They had recurring dreams of what it might have been like to be good enough. Relationships, marriages, they don't get through stuff like this. Well, maybe people stay together, but the fire goes out, or at least burns on only in torment. He went to work in search of something to distract him. He tried his best not to resent those vulnerable men and women for whom he laboured, who were still managing to hack their way into the future. But what about his boy? He would stop suddenly in the middle of what he was doing to let the howl inside die down. What a laceration of the heart. Recovery was glacial. They ate their evening meals in silence and Orla tried to cheer them with hugging and smiles. They agreed to separate because they could no longer find within each other any absolution from the terrible guilt they felt. Orla stayed with her mother. He visited every second weekend, and, some consolation, their daughter was increasingly cherished by both her parents. It seemed as if she didn't, or couldn't, accuse them silently, the way they always felt the other one was doing. Even though they soon forgave each other, they wouldn't forgive themselves. Ashling went on holiday to Australia and took Orla with her. He thought they might not come back. He fretted, but decided that to say anything would only make things worse. Idiot, he thought. Things can't get worse. There was no purpose in the day and no comfort in the night. He missed his daughter terribly. He would have missed Ashling, but he didn't let those thoughts through. That part of me is dead, he concluded. He had loved Australia, and he loved Ireland, with its craggy mist-flecked hills and its cold and shining shore. He pondered briefly a return to the old sod, but what really did he now know of Ireland? He had fled with the great exodus of the vicious 1980s. Many had since returned to feed the tiger, or later to pick over its corpse, but he was deracinated. The bleak harshness of London formed the half-home, the only shelter now. He settled in a small bedsit in Wilsdon and made the most of a bad job. How? By whittling time away, by letting the days become undifferentiated as they sped past. He worked, he walked, he drank, he mumbled in the foggy company of mild acquaintances. Ashling and Orla returned from down under. She had thought that perhaps it would be better to make a fresh start, to go back to the beaches of Sydney and her fair Dinkum family, but it wouldn't have been the right thing for Orla. She had friends in London, and Orla's opinion on the matter was no less important than that of anyone else. So, to the old routine resumed. Orla saw her father every other weekend, and the Philip that her return gave him was a nudge away from despair. 
Nothing would ever be the same again, but at least by slow degrees a healing of sorts had begun. Ashling invited him for tea. They scrabbled around a bit for conversation to start with, but relaxed soon enough into familiar grooves of this and that. It doesn't mean we're getting back together. I didn't think it would. Just saying, I heed you. What have you been up to? Not a lot. Taken to walking. I go for miles and miles sometimes. Keeps you fit. Aye, and out of trouble. Where do you go? Along the canal, mostly. You took me on the canal in Ireland once. Indeed I did. From Nace to Shannon Harbour. Forty-three locks in all. The water was cold. It was mighty cold. Orla went surfing in Bondi. Did she now? She has her own wetsuit. A water baby, like her mother. Flattery will get you nowhere. Sure, I've nowhere to get. Oh, listen, I found something. Here you go. My old hat! It was a gift from me. I hadn't forgotten. You never asked for it when you moved out. Didn't think I'd be needing it again. Ah, but you never know. She set the hat on his head. It makes you look distinguished, she said. He walked home along the canal, past houseboats and barges, motor launches and dinghies. Some were beautifully kept with potted plants and colourful flags, and some were dilapidated and damaged, though many of the worst were dwellings still for people in dire straits, he supposed. He wore the hat. An old codger you are now, he thought to himself, kicking along with your grey hair under your old Australian bush hat. And life was not fine, and matters were not all sorted or resolved, and the mournful bell of grief was still chiming inside him, and the traces of faded love still lined his thoughts when he let down his guard. But here he was, putting one foot in front of the other, and there were tasks to attend to, and there were little things to anticipate with something close to joy. He left the towpath at Harlesden and stepped up to the main road. A large lorry swooshed past, causing a great gust. This time he was prepared. He held on to his hat. Thank you.